The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member FDIC. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser de ser forense. Nunca había visto una una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo. Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro, ¿dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Pushkin. The following episode contains discussions of sexual assault that some listeners may find distressing. There's a certain equality in death. Visit a British military cemetery with its pristine lawns and carefully tended flower beds, and you'll see no difference between the pale stone grave markers of women's service members and those of their male counterparts. Below a carved crest of their unit, be it Army, Navy, or Air Force, the tombstones carry each woman's name, her rank, the date on which she died, and her age. 44, 27, 21, 18, 17. In a space at the bottom of each stone, relatives are permitted to add a brief personal message. One grieving family writes, Not goodbye, darling, but au revoir for we will meet again. Illness and accident accounted for hundreds of these wartime deaths. And while women were not supposed to serve on the front lines, many were indeed killed by enemy bullets and bombs. But distressingly, some of these tombstones also mark the final resting places of women who died in other troubling circumstances. 37-year-old Lillian Welsh, an army cook, is cycling back to the cottage she shares with her husband, William, and their daughter, Audrey. Her steel helmet and military gas mask are slung over her shoulder. It's late in the evening, and the twisting road is dark. Thick woodland comes right up to the edge of the tarmac, the bare winter branches meeting overhead. Lillian probably isn't too concerned by the gloom. She's familiar with this quiet route. But then... The sound of an approaching engine slowly fills the chill night air. The light from the truck's hooded headlamps might just be enough to illuminate Lillian's back and cast a shadow onto the tarmac ahead. The light grows stronger, the engine louder. Something isn't right. Lillian keeps to her side of the road and pedals on. Why doesn't he overtake? Why doesn't he pull over to the right and pass by? Hemmed in by trees, there's no obvious escape for the cyclist. How long this terrifying chase lasts isn't known. Perhaps it's a matter of seconds, or perhaps Lillian is pursued by the driver for hundreds of yards. 
when the fender of the truck hits Lillian's bike, the force is enough to crumple the frame. Lillian is catapulted from the saddle and sprawls onto the road just ahead of the truck. Her wristwatch stops at 9.53. This is the seldom told story of women in World War II who were killed not by the enemy, but by husbands, lovers and strangers wearing the uniform of their own side. It's also the tale of a particular string of murder victims that history has swept from view. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. And I'm Alice Fines. And you're listening to Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper. Second World War, violence perpetrated against women wasn't confined to the Blackout Ripper's West End hunting ground. It happened in other parts of London too, in other big cities and their suburbs, in bustling port towns, at remote air bases and army barracks, and even on the quiet lanes and rural backroads so familiar to Lillian Welsh. In this episode, we'll leave Piccadilly and Soho to explore the lives of young women who enlisted in the armed forces. These women made unique and brave contributions to the war effort, breaking codes and parachuting into enemy territory. They also made other equally important contributions doing the dull and dirty tasks that freed men up to fight on the front line. Many had the time of their lives. I was very much afraid the war would end before I could get involved and help to win, but luckily it didn't, and... uh, in fact, had a rather interesting war. Women like Patricia Outram were plucked from their homes and faced new challenges alongside people they'd never otherwise have met. The foundations of careers were built, friendships forged, and romances kindled. I did have a boyfriend, a Canadian. We used to explore Kent in his staff car and, uh, you know, have a bit of a social life. But, of course, he went off to Europe and... He wrote for a time, and then obviously he lost interest. So I didn't form any permanent attachment during the war. I was quite keen not to, actually, because I didn't just want to be married and settle down and have a family. I wanted to have a career. Pat and her sister Jean were teenagers when they joined up, and their foreign language skills saw them assigned to top-secret work, spying on the enemy. For the caserna. Vor dem großen Tor stand eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Today, both aged nearly 100, the sisters have a party piece. They sing the popular wartime hit Lily Marlene together. Pat in German, Jean in Italian. Yes, I probably got a lot of the words wrong, but we used to sing it out, so... Both women clearly loved their time in the forces. And in retirement in the leafy London district of Chiswick, they happily regale visitors with tales of their wartime exploits. I'm probably the only respectable old lady in Chiswick who might be able to use a light machine gun. But the new opportunities they enjoyed sometimes brought new and less welcome interactions. Jean, a crossword whiz who became a codebreaker, travelled widely. Her secret work took her to the battlefronts of North Africa and Italy, often perilously close to the fighting. But it was in London that she experienced one chilling brush with danger. During an air raid, she was forced to take cover in a public shelter. And there was a man there, the most appalling creature that I'd ever seen in the whole of my life, who reached out as I came in. Jean was a teenager and alone. 
she turned on her heels and raced back up the steps to escape this male assailant. In the end, she decided that it was better to face the blitz than to risk falling into his clutches. So I did stay up on the top, but luckily was not bombed and nobody killed me. But I might have done if I'd gone down those steps. Such terrifying encounters were by no means rare. And while Pat and Jean have nothing but praise for their male colleagues, women in the forces didn't just have to avoid assault at the hands of strangers in air raid shelters. The men fighting alongside them could also pose a threat. Men must dodge advancing bullets, and girls are expected to dodge advancing men. Dr Tessa Dunlop says female veterans have long been reluctant to talk about such harassment. They don't want to undermine the reputation of Britain's military forces in its greatest hour. Why would they want to do that? You know, we were the goodies. Our boys were the good guys. Tessa is the author of Army Girls, the secrets and stories of military service from the final few women who fought in World War II. She spent countless hours talking to female veterans and examining written accounts from the time. I noticed there was a clear discrepancy between the way in which they remembered their experiences, fondly, laughing, oh, he's a bit of a pest, giggling about it in late great old age, and the letters they wrote home, especially if the letters were written between contemporaries, written to their peers. Tessa's research has uncovered patterns of harassment, intimidation and sexual offences that are grimly familiar to women today, like the behaviours described in this private letter. I do wish that men didn't always assume that if they take you out, they can kiss you whenever they choose. Last night, I went with a naval type to the club. He started getting gooey, and I had a hell of a time on the way home. When service women faced lewd comments, unwanted advances, groping, or worse, the opportunities to challenge such behaviour were limited. There was the usual social pressure on women to manage the egos of all men. But the military added another power dynamic. Would any allegations be taken seriously if the man accused was of a higher rank? Tessa gathered testimony from an army clerk, Joan Aubrey, who came under intense pressure to enter a relationship with an officer. And he just drives her to distraction. He sort of stalks her. I mean, he starts trying to contact her parents. He tries to change her leave to match hers. He leaves her flowers on her desk. He tries to kiss her. She's really bothered by it. She writes to her parents. She says, I'm so depressed. I could really wish all these men would go away. Well, mainly one particular man. With her daily work life thus blighted and no relief in sight, all Joan could do was pray that the officer would be posted elsewhere, hopefully to the grim fighting taking place in the remote jungles of Burma. Other than these letters and diaries, this sort of harassment doesn't leave much of a paper trail. And to the military's shame, it's only when it becomes more extreme and more violent that it finally crops up in the official archives, in the form of court-martial papers, police files and autopsy reports. It was pretty dark stuff that's going on at its worst. Pretty dark stuff indeed. It was still early when farm worker Herbert Pratt set out too dark for him to see much of anything as he cycled to the fields and his waiting tractor. But then, a strange shape on the verge at the side of the road caught his eye. A cap lay on the ground, bearing the insignia of the Women's Branch of the Army, the Auxiliary Territorial Service, or ATS. And close by was its owner. Lillian Welsh had suffered devastating head wounds. Blood trails across the tarmac revealed that her body had been dragged from the obvious site of the collision. Whoever had killed this soldier had lingered at the crime scene, tampering with evidence. Lillian's underwear had been removed and placed next to her corpse. Lillian was laid to rest in the shadow of the ancient stone church not far from the Welsh family cottage. Her coffin was ceremonially draped with the Union flag, and her headstone bore the crest of the ATS, as well as her rank and serial number. The sergeants for whom she cooked stood to attention at the graveside, and full military honours were observed as her coffin was lowered into the ground. 
investigators reviewing Lillian's long list of injuries quickly concluded that only a heavy vehicle could have wrought such damage, the type of vehicle driven almost exclusively by military personnel. Good evening, Corporal. I've uh, got a few questions I'd like to ask you, if you don't mind. Police officers checked alibis for army drivers in camps in the vicinity. They identified one man who returned alone to his billet in a one-and-a-half-ton truck after 10 o'clock on the night in question. At first, William Flack denied the allegations. But with the discovery of a pair of blood-drenched boots hidden away under his army cot and of incriminating dents and blood traces on the truck, his story slowly shifted. He was new to the area, and he had mistakenly passed the turn to his camp and followed Lillian's route home instead. He maintained that he hadn't seen the cyclist at all, not until it was too late. He claimed that, disorientated and panicked, he'd moved her body and tampered with her underclothes, all in a bid to make it appear that someone who knew her had committed the crime. Flack was charged with willful murder. Then, the prosecution added more charges to the court docket. A pair of young women from Wales, where Flack had previously been stationed, accused the army driver of sexual assault. One woman described how he'd launched his attack after knocking her from her bike with his truck. Flack denied this version of events. These women were simply lying. And as for mowing Lillian down, bespectacled Flack stated that he was a novice behind the wheel and he'd repeatedly asked to be reassigned from driving duties because he fretted about his eyesight. He wasn't in the habit of deliberately knocking down women and launching sexual attacks on them. He was just clumsy. After 25 minutes of deliberation, the jury agreed with Flack. He was no murderer. And the judge, for his part, concurred with this verdict. Rather than being sent to the gallows, Flack received a seven-year prison sentence for manslaughter. Flack died in 2002. Who knows if, as an elderly man, he stood to attention amidst other veterans at Armistice Day parades, if he shared stories of his time in the forces, or if he let people stand him a beer at the local pub in thanks for his wartime service. Bringing offenders before the courts and securing convictions was difficult enough in this age before advanced forensic science, but when young women, and particularly service women, were the victims, there were other hurdles to clear. Women in the forces were dogged by crude insinuations that they invited the advances of men and that they were asking for trouble. In fact, the reports and files on these cases are often a dismal exercise in victim-blaming. All too often, violence against women was cruelly ignored or coldly dismissed. Bad Women, the Blackout Ripper, will return in a moment. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. 
If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avalar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro. Listen to Umo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you seen this band before? Was he good? Witnesses said the band was playing the tango sensation Jealousy as 18-year-old Private Louisa Price left the dance at the Forest Glen Pavilion, like a raucous affair hosted by a detachment of American soldiers. Oh, jeez, do you see her dance, man? She didn't go far. When her body was found in the nearby undergrowth, her uniform and underwear had been torn away and she'd been beaten to death with a rock. Months later, prosecutors thought they had their man, a 22-year-old military policeman called Sergeant Michael Piosh, who had sustained several injuries on the night of the dance, and whose uniform bore bloodstains matching not only his own blood type, but also Louise's. British police had carried out the investigation, but because Piosh was American, it was the US Army who charged and tried him. At the trial, the officer defending Piosh deployed a cynical strategy, probing and picking apart Louisa Price's conduct. Private Price was a pretty good jitterbug dancer? He asked Louisa's ATS comrade, Lily Bentley. Yes. The jitterbug was one of the most fashionable dancers of the day, but also the most notorious. Energetic and lively, jitterbugging was seen by many as a deeply inappropriate and morally suspect import from the USA. Many venues in America and the UK had already banned the dance, and the moral panic about jitterbuggers like Louisa Price carried both misogynistic and racist overtones. One disgusted dance hall observer described... Maidens gasping with their eyes staring, almost fainting as they hurled themselves about like savages. Was the defence counsel trying to paint a less-than-flattering picture of Private Price? Had she surrendered to this heathen music, been passed from partner to partner and flung into the air like a savage, with her army skirt billowing wildly? Lily Bentley defended her friend. Private Price, she told the court, had only jitterbugged with other women. The defence tried another tack. Had the ATS girls also requested that a sexually charged tango be played? And had they further teased the servicemen at the dance by asking the band to play the aptly titled hit, Jealousy? Were you one of those who asked the orchestra to play Jealousy? No, sir. Had you asked for a tango at all? No, sir. The defence suggested that Louisa had been killed by one of the men on the dance floor that night. A man she'd led on, they insinuated, but whose advances she'd then refused. Piosh, who was heavily inebriated, had been in no fit state that night to tango or dance the jitterbug. His own counsel described him as... A drunken, drooling idiot. 
Sergeant Piosh was acquitted, and he vowed to stop drinking for good. Louisa Price's killer was never found. The drunken jitterbugging and tangoing of that party would only have reinforced a popular opinion about ATS girls. The women of the Auxiliary Territorial Service were mockingly called ground sheets for the officers or the Auxiliary Tart Service. Tessa Dunlop says the move to conscript women into the armed forces in 1941, when the demands of the war were quite literally outstripping the supply of manpower, was deeply unsettling for many people. You know, this is a real sign that Britain is waist deep in a war it's not winning if it's having to actually draft into military service, into uniform, females. The Nazi threat was an existential one, critics admitted. But surely women serving in the armed forces risk destroying the patriarchal underpinnings, the very fabric of British society. So an idea that a man was going to go away and fight, he was going to be the brave hero. He was fighting for this idyll, this domestic idyll, the idea of the sort of wife at home with the comely bosom and the fecund overflowing table. And there was a deep fear, and it persisted throughout the war, that if you in some way unpicked those very clearly defined gender roles, where the woman is a feminine icon to be protected and looked after, and a man is masculine and brave and wears a uniform and kills sometimes, it will somehow undermine the basis on which a war is fought. And the war office sort of had total conniptions over the demoralising of troops if women further encroached on this very male domain that was the military. Many poorer women were already doing tough, physically demanding jobs to feed their families and themselves. But for veterans like Pat and Jean Outram, who were entrusted with complex and top-secret tasks there was a real sense that they were breaking down barriers. I think I was lucky because, of course, no woman in the family had had anything like the sort of jobs that Jean and I did in the war. And um, you were rather aware that you were covering new ground. Pat can't recall facing discrimination in the course of her duties, though her experience within the world of spying and intelligence was far from the norm. She was, however, adamant that society's prevailing prejudices about women's limited capabilities were quite wrong. I'm very keen that uh, women can really do most jobs, anything like intelligence or the sort of jobs that I was involved with, perfectly well be done by a woman. But I think we did make a considerable step forward during the war by uh, showing that, yes, we could do uh, perhaps a bit more than women had ever been thought of as capable of. There was a further concern about allowing nice young women like Pat and Jean to undertake military service. According to Tessa Dunlop, it was feared that once they had been unleashed from the confines of domesticity, women would grow unfeminine, coarse and sexually promiscuous, hurting the morale of their menfolk. And the idea being, of course, if you're a boy fatting out on the front line, you're worried your fiancé, your sweetheart at home is suddenly in uniform and actually not at home anymore. You know, might she be being deflowered? So this was a, a really genuine concern. Rumours of sexual promiscuity among female recruits spread far and wide. It was the stuff of pub chatter, but it was also debated in the corridors of power. Questions were asked about it in Parliament. There is absolutely no foundation whatsoever for this whispering campaign, which I regret very much indeed, as there are a fine body of women who are doing a fine job of work. Although the Secretary of State for War defended the honour of female recruits, a fellow politician told the government he was pretty sure the whole country had the very definite impression that the ATS is not the sort of service to which a nice girl goes. Please, ladies and gentlemen, the ATS had been organising recruitment rallies. How do we know our girls are going to be safe? Yeah. Now it what had to change tack, staging down. public meetings to pacify parents and husbands and convince them that their daughters and wives weren't headed for a life of barrack-room debauchery. The authorities tried to demonstrate that these allegations of sexual immorality weren't supported by the facts. They tallied the number of babies born out of wedlock in the general population and found it was higher than the number born to service women. 
But, of course, mud sticks. Some parents reacted with cold fury at the lewd innuendos and idle chatter directed at their girls in the ATS. The famously proud coal miners of Durham in northern England suspected that class snobbery played a significant role in the denigration of their daughters serving in the military. Looks like she's wearing her mum's old curtains, if you ask me. They declared blisteringly that these rumours of immorality were intended to besmirch... Girls whose reputations are unassailable in their hometowns and villages. Tessa says that class was a defining issue for the women's services, especially the ATS. The rapidly expanding wartime military had little choice but to take recruits from all walks of life, sparking fears that so-called decent girls would fall in with and be contaminated by roughs from the slums. Anne, another veteran interviewed by Tessa, recalled the gaping class divide in her unit, which was largely made up of girls from London's impoverished East End. Anne, who was a vicar's daughter and was immediately promoted above them aged 18, you know, remembers spending hours combing the nits out of their hair and just being spellbound by their conversations about sex and boys, stuff she'd never heard before. Because Anne says what endured was our friendship and we would have never met had it not been the war. This idea that there was this naive vicar's girl having her eyes opened and likewise the East End of London equivalents, you know, being struck by this decorous, very sweet, polite girl who was helping them. So there was an aspect of melting The ATS vigorously argued that, far from corrupting the nation's good girls, this social mixing elevated all recruits. After all, Winston Churchill's daughter Mary joined up, as did heir to the British throne Princess Elizabeth. The daughters of the rich, so went the theory, had the breeding, confidence and wherewithal to say no to men. It was hoped, therefore, that the right sort of girl would teach the wrong sort how to ward off male advances and the deep shame of premarital pregnancy. But, as we'll hear after the break, some men wouldn't take no for an answer. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to The Tipping Point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank, NA, member FDIC. Hey, 
Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. En spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo. Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro, ¿dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts. The following story contains explicit language and descriptions of sexual assault that some listeners may find understandably distressing. We've also changed names to align with modern practices for protecting the identities of victims of sexual offences. I'm gonna fuck you, I'm telling you. Jane is terrified. It's nearly midnight and an American soldier has pushed her off a bicycle and dragged her into the shadow of a hedge beside the road. The GI is on top of Jane now, tearing at her uniform and sexually assaulting her. Jane asks the stranger if he will stop so that they can talk. The man agrees and allows Jane to stand. She steps away from her attacker and screams for help. Help! The soldier tackles Jane, once more dragging her to the ground but her cries have finally attracted the attention of some people nearby. Two other GIs, smoking behind a hedge, rush to her aid, scaring the rapist away. He runs across a field in the direction of his barracks. Officers from the camp soon arrive, along with a local woman who tries to comfort Jane. What's happened to you? Jane's hair is twisted and turned. Her army uniform is disarranged, her stockings torn. Had a nasty fry. Her cap has come loose in the prolonged struggle against her attacker. She asks her rescuers to help her find it. The witnesses describe her as upset and hysterical. Jane, a senior sergeant, will see her attacker again. She confidently picks him out of a lineup of 15 other men from his unit. While many of those other men would later take part in the D-Day invasion, celebrated forevermore as patriots and heroes, John Sipes was tried, dishonorably discharged, and sent to prison to serve 10 years' hard labor. Tessa says that had Sipes ultimately succeeded in raping Jane, the abortion laws of the day would have forced her to carry any baby to full term. Can you imagine if she was then burdened with an illegitimate pregnancy, how even more torturous that process would have been? She'd have had to have given up some baby in some awful mother and children's home, which is where a lot of these girls gave birth. But what really strikes Tessa about Jane's case is neither these cruel abortion laws nor the appalling brazenness of the attack itself. Instead, she's surprised that Jane's attacker was actually convicted. If you drill into the case, look what's required to achieve that conviction. There are two witnesses, two uniformed male witnesses, almost at the scene of the crime when it's happening, who hear her plaintive cries and find her damaged bicycle. And crucially, she's the sergeant major. So she's a woman of rank and status within the ATS. So she's believed. Not only is she believed, but she's found, you know, sort of ripped tights and derobed and scared. Just how unlikely is it? that you're going to be attacked in earshot of two men serving in uniform. By the way, men, of course, are more likely to be believed because men don't gossip, girls do. Tessa says that many service women didn't even report rape and sexual assault, either through shame, fear, or just through the sense that their word wouldn't be believed. Such crimes were prosecuted internally in the military, so-called khaki justice, rather than in civilian courts. This could place criminal cases in the hands of serving officers with little experience of the law. Indeed, Tessa recounts the disturbing case of another young woman who reported a rape to her somewhat clueless female commander. And the case falls apart because she didn't really understand what the girl was talking about. She couldn't make a proper description of what, how the girl seemed or what she'd experienced. But she clearly doesn't know what intercourse is, and therefore indeed rape. You've got no idea how ignorant 
some people were. I always remember my own grandmother saying she thought that some couples who never had children simply didn't know what to do. So, simple ignorance could upend a woman's chances of seeing justice. If you would have told me when I was like 20 that I would be interested in this topic, I would say no, not at all. U.S. Army veteran Kim DeFiori knows only too well the pressure women in the military continue to face to stay silent and conceal assaults from their commanders. Generally speaking, they don't believe the victim any more than assailant, especially if the assailant's a higher rank. And so you have that hurdle to go through. And then say we did make it to a court-martial. The chances of that person getting a conviction and getting a hefty sentence is like 0.0001%. The chance of them getting a light sentence is 0.8%. So the stats are against you. Kim is a West Point graduate and a career officer. After serving a brutal deployment in Afghanistan, she returned to what she thought was the safety of a base in Germany. We're just happy to be alive. It was just a very exciting time because we're like, hey, we made it like through a combat tour. It was awesome. And so we're out and the club was about two blocks from where I lived. Like I was just walking home and my f- other friends were like, you good to get home? And I was like, yeah, I, I have two blocks. I'll just walk that way. And one of the guys followed me and I just I was too drunk to really fight him off. I just said, like, no, I don't want you here. And um, like I just kept saying, no, no, no. And then next thing I know, I'm waking up and the next morning he's gone and I just like couldn't get out of bed. And it was just this horrible new reality to wake up to. And until you've been through it, you can't really empathize with the victims of like waking up that next day and that next week and just seeing like that that cloud that's just over you. And you're just like, what do I do? Because... I know the system, and it's not going to work in my favour. As a captain herself, Kim would have been expected to deal with allegations of rape or sexual assault brought to her by her troops. But she didn't formally report her own rape. And when I was telling people, I guess they assumed that I had reported it. But there was just such a matter of fact about it. It was like saying, like, I got shot at Afghanistan... And it wasn't like, oh, yeah, that's really bad. It must have been traumatic. Like, it took me forever to even use a word like sexual assault or rape or military sexual trauma, anything like that, because there was so much blame on me. But it was traumatic. And that trauma ended Kim's army career. She's now an author and an advocate for reform when it comes to the way the military deals with sexual assault. We asked her to look at some of the cases from World War II that we'd identified in the files. Was she at all surprised reading them? If you would have asked me at 18, yes. But after being in the military for 13 years, not at all. It's such a prevalent problem. The victim-blaming attitudes inherent in some of the stories, like that of the jitterbugging Private Louisa Price, reminded Kim of warnings she was given as a young army cadet. I remember getting a briefing at West Point in about 2005 and... The central message around sexual assault was, hey, females, be careful what you wear because you don't want to be asking for trouble. It just cringes me to this day. And that's the reality of it is you still have messages like that saying, don't ask for it rather than putting the onus on, hey, let's get rid of rapists. Kim argues that war further clouds our judgment about rape and the men who perpetrate it. We celebrate those who show courage in battle or who are charismatic leaders, and we struggle to conceive that they might not behave so nobly in other situations. You can be a really good leader and also be a rapist. This bias can even make its way into the rape cases that do reach the military courts. You're allowed to present in your defence like a good soldier defence, saying basically like, oh, this person can't be that bad of a person because they deployed Iraq three times. Such hero defences crop up in the World War II archives as well. In one case, a soldier who had launched a terrifying assault on a woman was given just a minor fine after his superiors told the court that he'd shown heroism in battle. The man quickly went on to commit other sexual offences until he was finally jailed. 
Reflecting on the experiences of women in World War II, Kim recognises patterns that haven't changed. The tendency to excuse attackers and blame victims, the conflict of interest inherent in allowing an organisation to investigate its own members, and the onus placed on women to change their behaviour in the face of male violence. Kim also points out that men too are victims of sexual coercion and violence in the military. This was as true of World War II as it is today. Kim certainly doesn't criticise those ageing female veterans who shy away from speaking about the harassment, abuse and violence they endured. But she implores the rest of us to pay attention to the voices in the private letters and army files from that time and to heed what those women, so long dismissed, have to say. It's a hard topic to discuss, so it does a lot of good talking about it, even if it is uncomfortable. And I'll tell you, it's uncomfortable for all of us. But it needs to be a very talked-about discussion, just like anything else, because that's how we change cultures. In the next episode of Bad Women, we'll return to London's West End to meet the enigmatic Margaret Lowe, a refined woman known on the streets of Piccadilly simply as The Lady will trace her complicated story and meet the violent men who seek her out. If you want to learn more about Patricia and Jean Outram's wartime experiences, then we recommend you read their fascinating book, Codebreaking Sisters, Our Secret War. Bad Women, The Blackout Ripper is hosted by me, Hallie Rubenhold. And me, Alice Fiennes. It was written and produced by Alice Fiennes and Ryan Dilley, with additional support from Courtney Garino and Arthur Gompertz. Kate Healy of Oakwood Family Trees aided us with genealogical research. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show and composed all the original music. The show was recorded at Wardour Studios by David Smith and Tom Berry. You also heard the voice talents of Ben Crow. David Glover, Melanie Guttridge, Stella Harford, Gemma Saunders and Rufus Wright. Much of the music you heard was performed by Ed Gocken, Ross Hughes, Christian Miller and Marcus Penrose. They were recorded by Nick Taylor at Porcupine Studios. Pushkin's Ben Tolliday mixed the tracks. And you heard additional piano playing by the great Barry Wise. Hi, Barry. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori... Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. We'd also like to thank Michael Buchanan Dunn of the Murder Mile podcast, Lizzie McCarroll, Catherine Walker at the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, and the Earby Historical Society. Bad Women is a production of Pushkin Industries. Please rate and review the show and spread the word about what we do. And thanks for listening.
The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Yo tengo casi 33 años de ser, de ser forense. Nunca había visto una, una escena así. In spring 2021, reporter Brian Avelar launched an investigation that began in the depths of a grave dug by a serial killer and ended with the government forcing him and other journalists to flee El Salvador. Sonoro and Revista Factum present Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador. The story behind a country where the truth and its citizens' rights are buried under the weight of power. Señor Ministro. ¿Dónde está Karen y Eduardo Guerrero? ¿Dónde están mis hijos? Listen to Humo, Murder and Silence in El Salvador, wherever you get your podcasts.